IMX Mike Corbett here, the national official for NASGWT in Scotland. And I'm introducing to you our Better Deal for Teachers podcast. Uh, it's going to be a series of podcasts which explore a variety of issues across education in Scotland. Uh, and most importantly, talk to some of the key people about education in Scotland. And that will include from time to time some real live teachers. first for us here because we're doing our first live podcast and we're in the office of Labour politician Pam Duncan Glancy who is the education spokesperson for Labour in the Scottish Parliament. So firstly welcome Pam. Thank you, and I'm delighted that this is the first live one, and, and well done for, for getting off the ground and, and for all the work that you're doing for teachers across the country. Thanks very much for that. Um, I thought that we'd, we'd start, first of all, on your own education. So your education mm-hmm. spokesperson now, um, many teachers, and as a, a former teacher, I, w- I would say this as well, but many teachers know that you know they can have a positive impact on children's lives, and that often there's a key memory that, you know, someone remembers from their childhood, from their their time in education. So I just wondered if if you're able to to go back and and share with us anything from your education that that you remember in particular. Thank you for for that opportunity. Um, I I was really lucky, actually, um, as as a young young person. My mum and dad fought really hard to make sure that I could go to a mainstream school. And as a disabled person... Um, back in the sort of mid eighties, early nineties, that wasn't a given. That w- that was quite a quite a feat. Um, and my mum and dad fought hard, and I, I went to mainstream primary schools, three of them, um, because my dad changed jobs, which is why we moved around, um, and then to a mainstream high school. So um, I went to went to high school up north. Um, I, I loved it, and I was really lucky because the support for learning staff there were incredible. And if it weren't for them, I think I really would have struggled. So they put a lot of effort into making sure that not only could I move around the school and get the kind of basics in terms of physical access right, but the advice they gave me about my future career, um, the people they put me in touch with when I said I wanted to go to uni, they put me in touch with a disabled person who'd been to the uni I wanted to go to, so they recognised the value of peer support and they were really able to give me the time and space that I needed. Um, one memory of disabled people directly um, was in sixth year. So I had to stay on at school for an extra two years because I got the hires I needed um, in fifth year but couldn't go to university because they didn't sort a care package out for me. The two councils couldn't get it sorted. That's still an issue today. Um, so I had to stay on an extra year. So I crashed higher modern studies because I hadn't done it um, in standard grade. And I fancied doing it, and I'm so, so grateful for the opportunity to do that because it really did pique my interest in politics. And I remember one moment when um, Mr McKee, who was my modern studies teacher, um, and if he's listening, hello, um, he he asked me in the classroom, did I believe in positive action? And at the time I said, no, I want to get a job on merit, and as a disabled person, um, I, you know, it's really important to me that I get it on the basis of merit. And I went home that night, told my mum about it, and my mum said, you have a lot to learn. <laughs> and she looked at me in almost disgust, and I was like, what have I done? And she was like, as a young, disabled, working-class woman um, from the north of Scotland in a rural area, you're going to face a lot of disadvantage. You really should be taking every advantage you can get. 
And it was at that point that I really crystallised my view of equalities, justice, discrimination, um, and probably began to recognise where my politics lay as well. So that was a pivotal day and moment in my education. Oh no, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, because what my, one of my next questions was, was going to be, how did you get into politics? But but obviously you've partly answered that at least. So, you know, that uh, that moment, that epiphany of, of taking modern studies and then, you know, getting involved in and certainly political ideas, etc. But how, how did that then become the later involvement in politics as a career? So I, I, I kind of got into it by accident, not design. Um, I, I went to university, as I say, I had to defer um, at a year. I, I did my sixth year, got my higher modern studies and, and um, a couple other subjects um, in sixth year and had to defer again because the care package still wasn't in place. Um, and in that year, I um, volunteered in my local primary school for primary one and primary two class. Um, I don't know if, if, if that approach would, would be an approach that would be taken now, but I volunteered um, as an assistant in the classroom and I loved it and I, I really got... Um, I really got a lot out of it. I then went, when I went to university um, to, to study psychology in Stirling, I realised that I wanted to do something that, as well as learning um, and doing my degree, I wanted something else because I'd enjoyed that voluntary experience and I'd enjoyed effectively being in the workplace, I guess. Um, and so I looked for something that I could do. And as a student, it's not, as a student who's a wheelchair user, there's not that many options in terms of part-time work that are available to you. And a woman approached me in the middle of the atrium in Stirling Uni one day and she said to me, hello, my name's Kelly, um, would you like to, we're looking for a disabled students officer and you look like you'd fit the bill. To which point I said, very, very, you know, astute, astute observation there, Kelly. Um, I have never represented anyone, it's not something I've been particularly um, driven to do, but tell me more about it. And I went along to a meeting, she taught me into it, obviously. I went along to a meeting in student council that night and they were discussing the refurb of the student union. Um, and the bar, of which I had a keen interest. And um, she she said uh, a number of people were raising issues about the design. And I noticed that there was a um, one design point was that there would be a key to the lift. So I asked the question, why is there a key to the lift? Why, why would I have to ask permission to use the, the, the union when others won't? And it was at that point I realised that if I hadn't asked that question, I'm not sure if anyone else would have. Mm. And that's when I really began to understand the, the value of representative democracy and they, at the same time, there was um, a, a Labour government was making significant inroads for disabled students, including in disabled students' allowance and supporting um, disabled students by implementing parts of the Disability Discrimination Act that had never been brought into play. Um, the Labour government did that. And so um, that, along with um, Anne Maguire's reforms um, in terms of improving life chances for disabled people, really attracted me. Um, to the Labour Party. So my, my kind of twin track of student politics and seeing a government making a difference to the people's lives who I was keen to help um, brought the two together whilst I, was a, um, whilst I was a student at university and that's when I joined the Labour Party. Right. Again, again, really interesting history that and, and some of the things you touch on there. Uh, and again, you know, some of these, you know, crystallising moments, you know, that one about, about the lift mm. is it, fascinating. And you're absolutely right. I think, you know, just that getting that notion that well, look, if I, if I hadn't asked the, the key awkward question, perhaps, here, then maybe maybe no one else would have. But now you're in a position as education spokesperson mm. for Scottish Labour in the Scottish Parliament um, to ask quite a few <laughs> awkward questions. And, uh, you know, so we'll, we'll explore one or two of those areas. But one that has become clear already in our conversation is 
about additional support needs um, and the importance of that. And and mm. I was really heartened by the story you told about the, you know those staff that were so helpful and encouraging to you. Now you will know that in terms of additional support needs, um, the Scottish Parliament's Education Committee has done a consultation on that. Uh, we've submitted to that consultation. I think we are going to be called to give oral evidence later this month um, about additional support needs uh, at the Education Committee. But it's clearly an area where we had a, a big review, the Morgan Review, mm. uh, a few years back. Many like ourselves feel that there's really not been the progress that there should have been there. So what are your thoughts on that and, and that whole side of things? So I, I really do worry about pupils with additional support needs just now um, in Scotland. So we know that about 37% um, on average of every um, of all pupils in every classroom will have an additional support needs, which begs the question, um, which also came out in the national discussion recently on education, that is it really additional anymore? It's getting, actually getting to the point that many pupils um, are experiencing significant concerns and issues um, around, around education. So we know, for example, through... Um, the, the evidence from the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists that coming into Primary 1 we're seeing pupils with significant disadvantage possibly from as a result of, of COVID but also um, continuing and I suppose the long, the long tail of COVID is, is continuing for those, for those pupils so there's, there's difficulties there from the starting point so from the very point people are getting to school now we're, um, they're, they're, they're struggling we also know that the support that's available is um, is not what what it should be. I don't think it's kept pace. So when I say that thirty seven percent of um, pupils have an additional support needs, the number of support staff um, to that that are in schools and, and and around pupils with additional support needs hasn't kept pace with that increase. Um, coupled with the fact that for um, educational psychologists who have a key role to play here as well, are now. Um, I think that the ratio of them is that we've got one educational psychologist to about 630 pupils with additional support needs. That is a massive concern for me and something that we really, really need to address. If you look at that and then you add into it the, the pressures that teachers are facing in classrooms. I mean, teachers are now, in my view, um, more than teachers. They always have been, right? They've, you know, when, I, when I was at school, teachers were um, everything from you know, your, your, your support, your, your, your crutch, um, in some cases, your, your, your guardians. Um, but but now they seem to be doing um, an awful lot more. You know, they're with with difficulties in access and support for for additional support. Teachers are really having to take on more than they ever have. That makes it difficult for them not only to meet the needs of an, of pupils with additional support needs in the class, but also to provide an education for all of the pupils in that classroom at the same time. So th- those things really worry me. Um, I'm concerned that parents are having to fight much much harder than they really should. I mean, it shouldn't be a fight actually to get the support you need. Um, part of that is about a diagnosis, although the legislation doesn't require a diagnosis for pupils to get additional support um, for, for learning in place. But nonetheless, getting that in the first place um, is delayed and difficult. And then once um, any support plan is in place, and we know that they are um, very under underused, so we've only got about 0.1% of the population of pupils with additional support needs have a coordinated support plan. Once that is in place, it's really difficult to, um, to implement because teachers are struggling, they, they've got bigger classes than they've had before despite promises to reduce class sizes, they don't have the non-contact time that they've been promised and all of their pupils are facing considerable difficulties or a lot of them are. So all of that means parents are struggling, pupils are not necessarily getting the support they need and, and teachers are, are really fighting against the tide and pushing against the tide to be able to provide that support. 
And I hope that through the inquiry the, the committee is doing, we can try to unravel the, really where the, the pressure points are and, and find out exactly what the solutions need to be. Because if we can get it right for pupils with additional support needs, we will get it right for all pupils in our classrooms. And so I think that is the place that we absolutely have to start. Thanks. I think we certainly welcome the, the focus that the, the Education Committee's inquiry is going to bring um, and like you hope that that is going to kickstart you know, some real action mm. on, on the additional support needs side of things. Um, you, you touched there uh, briefly on some of the pressures on teachers and certainly in our surveys year after year after year the, the top concern for our members is excessive teacher workload. Um, and you'll be aware there's, there's been a frustration amongst our members about a, a politician's manifesto promise uh, not being delivered or not yet being delivered. Um, so I wondered if you had some, some thoughts on that side of things about that you know, particular promise about reducing class contact time and where that sits at the moment um, and, and what, you know, what we can do to help mm. teachers in terms of reducing their workload. So most, most people in, in, in Scotland and, and, and indeed elsewhere understand that significant change takes time. Most people can accept that, and, and teachers, I'm sure, um, are, are no different. I think part of the problem we've got is that we there have been promises made to reduce non-contact time, uh, sorry, increase non-contact time, and to reduce class sizes. And when those promises are made um, lead in the lead-up to an election and then in programmes for government, people expect them to be delivered because they're not just things that have been suggested or pulled, or they certainly shouldn't be things that are just pulled out of thin air. Um, they're things that presumably you would hope the work behind the scenes have been done to, to work out, will this, what is the problem? Will this solve that problem? And how are we going to do it? And actually, the more um, the, the public now, I think, rightly have an expectation that when politicians say they're going to do something, they'll do it. I mean, it, feel, it seems like a very basic thing to, to, to do, which is why it's incumbent on all of us um, across every political party to make sure that if we do say that we're going to do something, that we do it. We've got a, we, we have to restore public trust in politics in that respect, but also we have to make a difference to um, the, the lives of pupils and teachers across Scotland because it's becoming increasingly difficult. And I've used an analogy um, in the past where I feel in some situations, classrooms are a bit like pressure cookers. So there's, there's bubbling on the surface of serious concerns. So we've got distress behaviours, I would say, which has resulted in some of the incidences of violence um, and poor behaviour in classrooms. We've got teachers who are, as, as you've described, overworked, don't get the break from, from that particular work and, and the non-contact time they need. Um, and all of that means that we're seeing an increase in, in violence, which I think is a bit of a canary in the coal mine. So um, to me, that says there's, a, there's an issue here and we need to address it. And if a government has made a commitment to do something that people know and teachers know will help solve part of this they, they really do need to do it and that's why I think teachers across Scotland are anxious um, for the government to move a pace on that as am I and um, I spend a considerable amount of my time answering what, uh, some of those awkward questions uh, asking some of those awkward questions around that particular point because without that um, those promises being put in place it's really hard to see how the situation can improve for teachers Thanks Pam you touched again there on pupil behaviour and, and, and violence and, and abuse occurring more than it has done in the past um, in classrooms and in schools around the country and that's another key thread of, of our own Better Deal for Teachers campaign um, is the impact of that 
own teacher well-being. Um, and this time, it's it's not as much uh, a promise that's not been delivered, but it was more um, our members being encouraged to think that actions were going to be taken in terms of, there was an education committee last June, but I think we, we gave evidence and, and these issues were explored. That seemed to prompt the cabinet secretary at the time to announce a series of national summits on relationships and behaviour in the autumn, which we welcomed. That was an acknowledgement, look, there's a serious problem here. The, the BISSER research, the government's independent commissioned research, echoed everything we and others had been saying about mm. it. So I think, you know, again, our members and teachers across the country were led to believe that, right, this is now acknowledged, something is going to happen. And then we seem to get an announcement in November, well, my plan is to have a plan and, and you know, I'll give a little bit of money to train some teachers as if it was their fault. And certainly, again, our, our members were, were really quite angry about, about that and are still looking to the cabinet sector and the Scottish government to do more on that side of things. So again, I wondered what your, your thoughts were on that. I think the, the fact that one of the, the strongest themes that came out of the national discussion over the, over the summer um, last year was that pupils are most concerned with feeling safe at school. And I know that teachers are in the same boat. Uh, and parents, of course, are dropping their children off at school and young people off at school, expecting them to be safe. But there is that, that kind of erosion of, of, of trust that that is the situation now. Um, because of the, the incidences that, that we're seeing in classrooms, that to me is a really unacceptable situation. And we, sh- we must have a zero tolerance approach to violence and poor behaviour in, in schools. And I, I, I must, I have to say, I, I like teachers and, and pupils and parents alike, followed the cabinet secretary up that hill um, when she said, you know, I, we're going to do something about this. And so we were all led up the hill to believe um, change was coming. We all, you know, as I say, followed her up there. And then I have to say, I was so disappointed um, the day when um, in the chamber when the announcements were, were made, particularly that point one of a five point plan was indeed to make a plan. Um, and then I think the point that you made there about the, the £900,000, I think it was, um, for teacher training, that really that really came as a blow to teachers because it's not that teachers don't need to be taught to be better at what they do. Teachers need support to be able to address the circumstances in their classroom. We've already spoken briefly about, um, I mentioned, uh, class sizes, but also um, the non-contact time. But as well as that, they need clear direction from the government on consequences in classrooms, what escalation options are available to them. Um, They need a very clear direction and leadership that this is unacceptable. We will not accept a situation where pupils go to school and don't feel safe, teachers go to school and don't feel safe, and parents are worried about what's happening when they're not around. That that is an unacceptable situation, and they really needed the government to come out with some clear, concrete um, actions. Because, as you said, you know, Pupils, teachers and parents have been telling the government of this for a long time. And so the summits were an important part and people um, engaged in those in good faith. But actually, none of the the problems that have been highlighted in the BISRA report or, I'm assuming at the summit, I haven't seen the minutes of them yet um, and and wasn't permitted to attend, but um, I'm assuming that all of those issues are things that people have been saying for a while. So the alarm bells have been sounding. I just hope the government now put in place concrete actions um, to to take this zero tolerance approach to low um, low level disruption, poor behaviour, and indeed violence in schools. We can only hope. We can mm. only hope. But uh, but you like like us, I'm sure we'll keep the pressure on uh, on that side of things. If we if we take another maybe slightly broader look ahead, then in terms of potential 
actions that, that are coming. Um, we've got a very broad education reform agenda um, and we've had various reports that, that have helped to inform that, but we're looking ahead to really significant change in Scottish education with a new qualifications body, you know, a new body to replace Education Scotland, um, the inspectorate being taken away from Education Scotland control and a new independent inspectorate, and uh, a revision of senior phase uh, qualifications, etc. You know, almost the whole system. Um, but that seems to have paused for now, and I know some people are, are vexed that there's a lack of pace there. From our point of view, we were quite pleased there was a pause for a period because we had felt that there hadn't been enough opportunity for classroom teachers to engage with some of the conversations around those proposed reforms. But I think there's certainly been an effort uh, or more of an effort to do that. Um, and we're now wondering, OK, well, what's the hold up and, and where are we going with this? But a, a huge agenda there. Uh, so for you, I mean, what, what are your feelings about that? Is there one part of that that you think is the most important for us to get right. So just wondering what your thoughts are there. So I was struck yesterday, I think, um, so it, where there was a report on the, the millions that have been spent on reform. And I think when we look at what's been spent on reform by the government and then we look at what reforms have happened, which are to date very few, it begs the question, has this been a good use of resource, time, energy um, and people's commitment? Because teachers, as you've said, as you said, have engaged as best they can in this process, wanted some more involvement in it. Um, but ultimately, the government have a plethora of reforms. The Cabinet Secretary's got many of them across her desk, um, most of which were started um, before she was in post. And I now think it's time, as, as her um, international um, group of experts on education told her, which is she needs to move to action. In, in, in my view, I think we need we need to do something about the, the curriculum, and that's part of that. Um, I think we need to address concerns for pupils with additional support needs. I think we have to address the, the, the point that I said earlier around um, classrooms feeling a bit like pressure cookers just now, and I think to do that, we must deliver um, the, the non-contact time for teachers, the reduced class sizes, and the um, intervention on violence um, in schools. I think if we do those things as a priority, I think that, that to me, would look at the substance of what we're doing as opposed to the structures. Now, I think um, we we do have to get on with the changes in the structures as well, but some of this needs to happen right now. And Withers, in, in Withers' review, has set out various different recommendations in, um, as to where, where he thinks um, the Cabinet Secretary should go as well. And some of those don't need legislation. Um, many of them could begin quite quickly. And a lot of them are necessary because right now we've got an education system that's not delivering for teachers, pupils or parents. So we need to take action um, and start delivering um, many of the, the suggestions that countless experts, teachers, trade unions, pupils and, and parents have been have been telling the government to take for some time now. Thanks for that, Pam. Uh, I was going to, we're, we're uh, moving towards the end of our conversation now and I was again going to just broaden it out uh, a little um, into certainly some of the work that, that we've done with the STUC. Um, and I attended uh, part of the STUC Disabled Workers Conference in December there. Uh, and that's not the first time I've been, but every time I've been, um, I'm struck by the positivity that's there. Um, and, you know, just just how amazing some of those people are and what they're, they're taking on day to day and how they're getting the message out there about support for disabled workers. 
But at the same time, when I come outside of that room, I think sometimes it doesn't take too long before I get quite disappointed by the seeming lack of recognition of that. Um, and I know that you've you know, been involved in, in making speeches to STUC disabled workers, conferences, etc. But what's your, your judgment at the moment uh, in terms of the support that's out there for disabled workers and, and what more needs to be done? So the government have a target to reduce the, the employment gap for disabled people by half. Um, now, I, I have to say I would like that to be a, a more ambitious target. Um, disabled people, in my view, are innovative by design. They have to be, because just getting out of bed in the morning requires a bit of innovation for, for many people. Um, and they face multiple barriers on, an, on a daily basis, in, including everyday ableism, um, discrimination, and just difficulties getting to do the same thing as other people. And it doesn't surprise me, but it angers me, that the figures on disabled people in the workforce are so woefully low, because to get into the workplace, if you think about the barriers to get there in the first place, so first of all, you've got um, not just the kind of thing that everybody else faces, which is, do you have the skills to get the job you want to do? So that's like a, one of the, the concerns um, for everyone. And that starts from, what do you want to do? In, like, what do you do in school in order to get the skills you need to do the job you want to do? Even getting to that point for disabled people is difficult, as we've discussed about the experience for pupils with additional support needs. But then you have to get, then you look at how do you get out of bed in the morning in order to get to the job interview, um, or in order to get to the college course to gain the skills you need to get the job and career you want. We need social care, and I mean, I think social care. You know, I I think that there are a lot of concerns around education that need fixed. Social care is not far behind if it's not you know, on par with some of the problems that we've got um, in terms of the scale of the challenge. We've got huge amounts of delayed discharge, thousands of people waiting for community care assessments, charges, for example, for um, community care and support rising in Glasgow by 75% and pushing people into poverty. All of that is making it really difficult to provide the care and support disabled people need. Then if you do get that, you have to be in a house that you can get in and out of. Um, and we know that there are 10,000 people in Scotland um, waiting on adaptations to their homes. Um, and then if you do get out of your house, you need to be able to get in transport and get you to the workplace. So when you put it together, and it's like a bit of a jigsaw, um, disabled people in the independent living movement um, talk about uh, the, the kind of the, the different pillars of, of rights. Um, and there's 15 rights for independent living, all of which interconnect social care, education, employment, support, all these kind of things. If even one of those is out of kilter, None of them can really deliver the, the, what, what they need. And so the scale of the challenge to support disabled people into work, disabled people who overwhelmingly want to and can work, um, is massive. And I think we need both governments, given the levers of change for, for, for some of that sit across both, and in fact local government too, particularly when it comes to social care, to really look at the challenge. And I haven't personally seen anything with any policy coming out of any government um, since the Improving Life Chances report that I mentioned earlier on that Anne Maguire did in 2007 that really grasped the scale of the challenge and the pace of change that was required. Now that was shelved when the coalition government came in in 2010, um, which is a real shame because that report is probably as relevant. In fact, some of the, some of the data it draws on is probably worse now um, than it would have been then. Um, but there's a lot in there about how we can have a, a real cross-governmental focus on addressing the, the real barriers that disabled people face um, in the home, in the community, in the workplace, um, and, and everywhere in between. Thanks for that, Pam. Just you know, a, a last little aside from, from me, you mentioning that 
2007 report mm. uh, and, and it really being something you could return to today mm. uh, and, and still apply much of what's in it uh, reminds me of tackling bureaucracy reports that, w- that we had back in 2015 mm-hmm. that were supposedly going to address teacher workload that we could go back to and still identify the same drivers of workload. So uh, that notion that there's good work being done in the past that, that we could still have a look at um, and maybe act upon um, is certainly a common message for us there. Mm, now, listen, I think that's pretty much our time out. Um, so thanks very much to, to you for, for doing this with us. Um, I know that, that we're hopefully going to meet again soon because uh, we're running a fringe meeting at the Scottish Labour conference later mm-hmm. in February. So it's been a really fascinating conversation and, and I hope to have another one with you soon. Thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed it and uh, yeah, I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.